Alright, so uh, this podcast does contain themes of murder and things of that nature. So if you don't like murder or crime or disappearances or anything like that, then you should probably uh, go and pick up something else. The house I grew up in was right next to a set of busy railroad tracks. From my bedroom window, I could watch the trains roll by. There were three types of trains that used those tracks and still do to this day. There were long, lumbering freight trains pulling boxcars, flatbeds, and tankers, which I would try and count as they clattered by. Then, there were the fast-moving commuter trains of the Metropolitan Area Transit Authority, aka MARTA, or the M, as some people call it. The Amtrak passenger trains would breeze by, heading to and from the central station in the heart of the city. Now, when most people see trains, they just see big machines rolling down ribbons of steel. But me, I saw trains as symbols of freedom and a way out of the hood. Whenever I saw a train, I would imagine all those places it was going to and coming from, naturally. My favourite toys as a tyke were my Thomas the Tank Engine toys. I had all the characters, Thomas, Percy, Gordon, James, Toby, Daisy, all of them. When I was ten, my grandparents bought me a Lionel train set for my birthday. To me, it was the best present ever. It consisted of a steam engine and four passenger cars. There was even a small bottle of drops you'd put in the smokestack that allowed the engine to make smoke. I'd spent hours watching that toy train run round in an oval, pretending it was real, and that I was driving the locomotive through forests, past fields, across mountains and small towns. I eventually developed other interests, namely girls. But I never lost my interest in trains. When I got older, I applied for a job as an engineer trainee on MARTA, and got it. For me, it was a dream come true. After I took the required classroom courses and exams, I soon found myself riding in the cab of the sleek diesel engines that pull the commuter trains. Now, the way the trainee program was set up was that they'd have you ride on different lines of the system for a few months with a regular engineer. I'd be on one line for a few weeks, and then I'd be assigned to another line, in order to be familiar with the different routes. The M has eight routes, all numbered. The main line is one, and all of the branch lines are line two, line three, and so on. I started on line seven the first few weeks before being moved to line eight. Now, line eight or the Cloverton Line, as it's sometimes called, is one of the longest branch lines on the system, second to only Line 2, aka the Miller Sport Line. The first time I rode on Line 8, I was with a veteran engineer named Hank. Now, Hank had been with the company from the beginning, when the old railroads decided they wanted out of the money-losing commuter services, and handed all their locomotives and rolling stock to Marta. We had the Night Owl service, which starts at 7pm and ends at 5 in the morning. We picked up our first passengers at Central Station, and were soon on our way to Cloverton. 
As we were going down the track, Hank turned to me and said, There is something you should know if you're going to be working for this railroad. Especially if they decide to put you here on Line 8 once they make you an official engineer. I looked at him and said, Oh, what's that? Hank paused to blow the horn for a crossing, and then he said, This line is haunted. I replied, Haunted? How's the line haunted? Hank looked at me and said, It supposedly started with a curse, back in the late 1800s, when one of the old railroad companies was building the line. The company built the line across the edge of an old farm that belonged to a man named Ezra Gray, without his permission. Ezra demanded that the railroad remove the tracks from his property and relay them somewhere else. But the railroad refused, due to it costing too much time and money to do so. Mr. Gray did try to sue the railroad, but was unsuccessful. You see, the railroads were quite powerful in those days, and the railroad had a lot of politicians and judges in their pocket. To add insult to injury, Ezra not only had to pay the court costs, but had to pay the railroad as well, for all the money they spent on the legal proceedings. This bankrupted Ezra and he was forced to sell the farm, minus the small patch of land that the tracks were built on. And Ezra vowed to get even one way or another. When the line later opened up, Ezra stood on the tracks in front of the first train. The engineer tried to stop in time, but, but Ezra was hit anyway. Before he died, Ezra cursed the line, saying it would bring death and sorrow ever since then. There's been a lot of mishaps and accidents on these tracks, and many people lost their lives. It is believed that some of those who died haunt various spots, and a few of the trains that crashed over the years come back as ghost trains. Still rolling along these very rails we're on now. I looked at Hank as he blew the horn for another crossing. Have you seen any ghosts on this line? I asked. Plenty. He said, I've seen everything from headless train men to phantom lights and ghost trains and... I didn't believe him at first, but didn't say anything. We eventually came to a curve in the track, and when we came out of it, I saw something that made my blood freeze. Coming at us was the headlight of another train. Hank, for God's sake, man, put the brakes on, I shouted. Don't you, don't you see the other train coming our way? Hank responded. Yeah, I see it. Don't, don't worry, we'll be fine. I looked at Hank and screamed, Are you crazy? We're about to die. Hank just pointed straight ahead and said, No, we're not. Get a look at that train. I did, and saw it not only did the oncoming engine have the shape of one of those older type diesels, like you see in photos, movies, and TV shows from the 50s and 60s. But it seemed to be a transparent shadow with a headlight and lighted cab windows. What the? I started to say. But then the shadow train hit us. Well, not hit us. Exactly. More like passed through us. Our whole cab was surrounded by shadows and streaks of light as what looked to be a passenger train passed through. 
and I swear I saw the pale, wispy figures of people sitting in the seats. Soon as it was gone, and the cab of our engine returned to normal. What the hell was that? I exclaimed. Hank turned to me and said, That was, was one of the ghost trains I was talking about. Well, what's the story with that ghost train? I asked. Hank sighed and said, Well, it all happened shortly after MARTA was established and took over the commuter rail lines. An evening inbound train had just crested the long grade we were on right now when it lost control and ran away, all downhill, before crashing and piling up on the curve at the bottom. Everyone on board was killed, and the cause of the wreck was blamed on the aging equipment MARTA was using back then. Heck, with only a few exceptions, most of the engines MARTA got from the old railroads were 25 to 30 years old and about 30% of the coaches used were even older. Not long after, the ghost of that train started making appearances along this stretch of the track, becoming one of the several ghost trains that haunt these rails. I looked at him, and then out the front window of the engine. What about the people back in the cars? Do you think they saw what we saw? I asked. Hank just shrugged and said, Probably, but I'm sure most of them are used to it, so I wouldn't worry too much. Our conductor is probably taking care of things right now. We continued on to Cloverton and arrived on time. We made runs back and forth all night, and several times I saw some of the scary things that Hank told me about. I was relieved when we finally tied up in the yard, leaving the coaches on one side of the track and put the engine in the roundhouse. The next few nights, however, were hell. Every night run, I had at least a few creepy encounters along Line 8, all of them with Hank, who would just shrug them off as if they were nothing. But I guess after nearly 40 years, none of the ghosts bothered him anymore. After a few days, I was put on the day runs, which was a relief to me and I didn't have to worry about seeing ghost trains or headless trainmen again. I eventually became a regular engineer and was put on the main line run. I'm pretty content. But if the big wigs for the M ever decide to put me on Line 8 Night Owl service, I'll quit. During my childhood, my family was like a drop of water in a vast river never remaining in one location for long. We settled in Rhode Island when I was eight, and there we remained until I went to college in Colorado Springs. Most of my memories are rooted in Rhode Island, but there were fragments in the attic of my brain which belonged to the various homes we had lived in when I was much younger. Most of these memories are unclear and pointless, chasing after another boy in the backyard of a house in North Carolina, trying to build a raft to float on the creek behind the apartment we rented in Pennsylvania, and so on. But there is one set of memories which remains as clear as glass, as though they were just made yesterday. I often wonder whether these memories are simply lucid dreams produced by the long sickness I experienced that spring, but in my heart, I know they are real, 
We were living in a house just outside the bustling metropolis of New Vineyard, Maine. Population, 643. It was a large structure, especially for a family of three. There were a number of rooms that I didn't see in the five months that we resided there. In some ways, it was a waste of space, but it was the only house on the market at the time, at least within an hour's commute of my father's place of work. The day after my fifth birthday, attended by my parents alone, I came down with a fever. The doctor said I had mononucleosis, which meant no rough play, and more fever for at least another three weeks. It was horrible timing to be bedridden. We were in the process of packing our things to move to Pennsylvania, and most of my things were already packed away in boxes, leaving my room barren. My mother brought me ginger ale and books several times a day, and these served the function of being my primary form of entertainment for the next few weeks. Boredom always loomed just around the corner, waiting to rear its ugly head and compound my misery. I don't exactly recall how I met Mr. Widemouth. I think it was about a week after I was diagnosed with mono. My first memory of the small creature was asking him if he had a name. He told me to call him Mr. Widemouth because his mouth was large. In fact, everything about him was large in comparison to his body. His head? His eyes? His crooked ears? But his mouth was by far the largest. You kind of look like a Furby, I said as he flipped through one of my books. Mr. Widemouth stopped and gave me a puzzled look. Furby? What's a Furby? he asked. I shrugged. You know, the toy. The little robot with big ears. You can pet and feed them, almost like a real pet. Oh, Mr. Widemouth resumed his activity. You don't need one of those. They aren't the same as having a real friend. I remember Mr. Widemouth disappearing every time my mother stopped by to check in on me. I lay under your bed, he later explained. I don't want your parents to see me, because I'm afraid they won't let us play anymore. We didn't do much during those first few days. Mr. Widemouth just looked at my books, fascinated by the stories and pictures they contained. The third or fourth morning after I met him, he greeted me with a large smile on his face. I have a new game we can play, he said. We have to wait until your mother comes in to check on you, because she can't see us play it. It's a secret game. After my mother delivered more books and soda at the usual time, Mr. Widemouth slipped out from under my bed and tugged my hand. We have to go to the room at the end of this hallway, he said. I objected at first, as my parents had forbidden me to leave my bed without their permission. But Mr. Widemouth persisted until I gave in. The room in question had no furniture or wallpaper. 
Its only distinguishing feature was a window opposite the doorway. Mr. Widemouth darted across the room and gave the window a firm push, flinging it open. He then beckoned me to look out at the ground below. We were on the second floor of the house, but it was on a hill, and from this angle, the drop was further than the two stories due to the incline. I like to play pretend up here, Mr. Widemouth explained. I pretend that there is a big soft trampoline below this window, and I jump. If you pretend hard enough, you bounce back up like a feather. I want you to try. I was a five-year-old with a fever, so only a hint of scepticism darted through my thoughts as I looked down and considered the possibility. It's a long drop, I said. But that's all part of the fun. It wouldn't be fun if it was only a short drop. If it were that way, you may as well just bounce on a real trampoline. I toyed with the idea, picturing myself falling through thin air only to bounce back to the window on something unseen by human eyes. But the realist in me prevailed. Uh, maybe some other time, I said. I don't know if I have enough imagination. I could get hurt. Mr. Widemouth's face contorted into a snarl, but only for a moment. Anger gave way to disappointment. If you say so, he said. He spent the rest of the day under my bed, quiet as a mouse. The following morning, Mr. Widemouth arrived holding a small box. I want to teach you how to juggle, he said. Here are some things you can use to practice before I start giving you lessons. I looked in the box. It was full of knives. My parents will kill me, I shouted, horrified that Mr. Widemouth had brought knives into my room. Objects that my parents would never allow me to touch. I'll be spanked and grounded for a year. Mr. Widemouth frowned. It's fun to juggle with these. I want you to try it. I pushed the box away. I can't. I'll get in trouble. Knives aren't safe to just throw in the air. Mr. Widemouth's frown deepened into a scowl. He took the box of knives and slid under my bed, remaining there for the rest of the day. I began to wonder how often he was under me. I started having trouble sleeping after that. Mr. Widemouth often woke me up at night, saying he put a real trampoline under the window. A big one. One that I couldn't see in the dark. I always declined and tried to go back to sleep. But Mr. Widemouth persisted. Sometimes he stayed by my side until early in the morning, encouraging me to jump. He wasn't so fun to play with anymore. My mother came to me one morning and told me I had her permission to walk around outside. She thought the fresh air would be good for me, especially after being confined in my room for so long. Ecstatic, I put on my sneakers and trotted out to the back porch, yearning for the feeling of sun on my face. Mr. Widemouth was waiting for me. I have something I want you to see, he said. I must have given him a weird look, because he then said, It's safe, I promise. 
I followed him to the beginning of the deer trail which ran through the woods behind the house. This is an important path, he explained. I've had a lot of friends about your age. When they were ready, I took them down this path to a special place. You aren't ready yet, but one day I hope to take you there. I returned to the house, wondering what kind of place lay beyond that trail. Two weeks after I met Mr. Widemouth, the last load of our things had been packed into a moving truck. I would be in the cab of that truck, sitting next to my father for the long drive to Pennsylvania. I considered telling Mr. Widemouth that I would be leaving, but even at five years old, I was beginning to suspect that perhaps the creature's intentions were not to my benefit. Despite what he said otherwise, for this reason, I decided to keep my departure a secret. My father and I were in the truck at 4am. He was hoping to make it to Pennsylvania by lunchtime tomorrow, with the help of an endless supply of coffee and a six-pack of energy drinks. He seemed more like a man who was about to run a marathon, rather than one who was about to spend two days sitting still. Early enough for you? he asked. I nodded and placed my head against the window, hoping for some sleep before the sun came up. I felt my father's hand on my shoulder. This is the last move, son, I promise. I know it's hard for you, as sick as you've been. Once Daddy gets promoted, we can settle down and you can make friends. I opened my eyes as we backed out of the driveway. I saw Mr. Widemouth's silhouette in my bedroom window. He stood motionless until the truck was about to turn into the main road. He gave a pitiful little wave goodbye, steak knife in hand. I didn't wave back. Years later, I returned to New Vineyard. The piece of land our house stood upon was empty, except for the foundation. As the house burned down a few years after my family left, out of curiosity, I followed the deer trail that Mr. Widemouth had shown me. Part of me expected him to jump out from behind a tree and scare the living bejesus out of me, but I felt that Mr. Widemouth was gone, somehow tied to the house that no longer existed. The trail ended at the New Vineyard Memorial Cemetery. I noticed that many of the tombstones belonged to children.